Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Dave Sicara examines the current market environment by sector. Alec Lucas takes a closer look at the world's largest retail fund family. Ben Johnson explores dividend durability and ETFs. And Megan Patchlock shares a new way to look at funds. Let's get started. Here is Dave Sicara from Morningstar Research Services with Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. The stock market continued its upward trend during the summer. How do things look as summer collapses into fall? Joining me today to discuss the current market environment is David Sakara. Dave is Morningstar's chief U.S. market strategist. All right, Dave, let's jump right in and begin by talking a little bit about how the market performed during the summer. What did returns look like? Well, you know, returns were actually really good this summer. So I'd say the old adage, you know, sell in May and go away certainly wasn't correct this year. So just looking at the Morningstar U.S. Equity Index, you know, we went up 8% from the end of April through the end of August. And considering we're up 20% year to date, that's a pretty substantial amount of those percentage of the returns. And now, uh, the technology sector in particular did really well during the summer. Um, I think gains were in excess of 15%. What drove that performance, and how do we think valuations look with tech, tech stocks right now? Well, there's a couple of different things going on in the tech sector which really drove you know, those returns. So first of all, you know, second quarter earnings generally were pretty strong you know, across the entire sector, and we're looking at pretty strong returns again here coming up in the third quarter. Now, tech did have a little bit of a tough time at the beginning of the year when interest rates were going up. However, with interest rates actually coming back down this summer, that took a lot of the pressure off of what we consider to be those long duration stocks, those growth stocks of which technology has, you know, a lot of those names in there as well. So with that pressure being off, you know, that certainly helped the sector as well. But as you mentioned, it's really only been the past two months that most of the returns this year in the tech sector have really occurred. And I think part of that too is just looking at, you know, the Delta variant and the surge in new cases that we've seen over the past two months. So I think a lot of investors are taking out that 2020 playbook and reinstituting that a little bit where you know they've probably been scaling back you know in some of those names which you know could be harmed if you know we continue to do have you know more cases coming up you know, again those typical names being in like restaurants retail hospitality type names and then reinvesting those proceeds back into the technology sector again the sector did very well last year you know during the pandemic and then how do valuations look in general with technology and, and sort of across the board? What do we think? Is the market overvalued today? Yeah, in the technology sector specifically, we do think that there is a little bit of overvaluation there. And to some degree, I think it's just that investors are looking at those strong earnings you know, in the second quarter and the third quarter and probably over-extrapolating that strength you know, too far into the future. Now, having said that, there are certainly still names that we do think are undervalued in the technology sector. You know, two that I would recommend investors to take a look look at would be Intel and Salesforce. And then how about the broad market overall? Do, where do we think valuation is there? Overpriced? You know, so based on a composite of you know, all the fundamental analysis and the equity research you know, from our equity analyst team, putting that together, we do think the market is probably about 5 to 7% overvalued you know, at this point in time. Now, having said that, you know, it's not like we necessarily think that there's going to be like a market correction coming up you know, this fall, but I would say that investors should probably temper their expectations for what returns might look like in the broad market over the next you know, 6 to 12 months. So now, Dave, real estate stocks had a really good run over the summer, but we think as a group that they're overvalued right now. What's going on there? 
That's correct. You know, we do think that real estate has run up too far too fast here. But having said that, you know, there are pockets of undervaluation that we do see in the real estate market. So a couple of the reasons I think real estate ran up is one, you know, interest rates, you know, did come down a bit this summer. And again, interest rates are, you know, very much, you know, a big part of how you do valuation in the real estate market. So as, you know, investors have been looking at cap rates, which are your underlying interest rates, you know, plus a spread for the risk in the real estate market, you know, as those came down, you know, those prices have been running up. Now, in addition to that, in the real estate market, oftentimes investors look at that as being a good long-term inflation hedge, just because, you know, as inflation goes up, you're able to push through, you know, higher prices, you know, on your tenants over time. So I think the combination of those two things has helped, you know, push that sector higher. Now, there are still some names there we do think, you know, are undervalued that have lagged, you know, the overall real estate sector. And of course, those are going to be the names that, you know, are going to be most impacted by kind of the resurgence in the pandemic we've seen over the past two months. So in more like the retail, restaurants, hospitality space, you know, one name there that we think is undervalued would be Macerich, which has a lot of, you know, class A malls in its portfolios. You know, another one in the hotel space that we would look at is going to be park hotels. And then finally, another one that uh, is interesting would be Vornado. So Vornado actually has a real estate portfolio of uh, high quality office space in New York, which still is in its recovery stage. Now, another uh, area that we think is overvalued is basic materials, but basic materials stocks in general didn't have that great of a summer. Let's talk a little bit about that group. Yeah, the basic materials sector actually really outperformed earlier in this year. And I think a lot of that was that it was just in conjunction with, you know, all the infrastructure spending that, you know, they're talking about in Washington, D.C., you know, the American Jobs Act, which I think had, you know, over $2 trillion worth of infrastructure spending in there. And so we saw, you know, a lot of interest in that basic materials space. And also just as an inflation hedge, you know, again, in the basic materials space, specifically commodities, you know, do hold up over time in an inflationary environment. So again, while we're not necessarily concerned about inflation lasting, you know, past this year, you know, we expect it probably goes down towards, you know, a 2%, you know, long-term run rate, you know, after this, you know, short-term bump that we've seen. Again, a lot of investors that are concerned about inflation being, you know, persistent and lasting longer have certainly moved into that space as well. So really where we see undervaluation in the basic material space are going to be in those names that actually aren't leveraged to infrastructure because again, those names have already ran up earlier this year. You know, two there that you know, I'm interested in and uh, recommend investors to take a look at would be Compass Mineral Holdings as well as Air Products. And now we'll look at the opposite side of things with sectors. Let's look at a couple that we think are in general undervalued, the first of which is energy. We still think that area is undervalued. Yeah, so energy, you know, was just punished in 2020. Again, with the shutdowns, the demand decrease in travel, you know, energy prices in and of themselves, you know, went down. In fact, I remember when you know, oil hit like a negative price last year, which certainly has never, you know, happened before. And generally, you know, the energy sector, you know, has certainly recovered. But at this point, we still think that energy is probably the most undervalued sector of all the different sectors that we cover. So we do still see you know, a lot of upside potential for investors. Now, here in the short term, you know, they have pulled back this summer. And again, that's going to be in correlation with, you know, the pandemic, you know, and that cases, you know, coming back. But again, for long-term investors, even if we do see, you know, maybe some more shutdowns, maybe a decrease in demand, you know, for travel, we still think there's enough margin of safety in the sector and in most of those names, you know, that investors should take a look there. 
Again, two names there that I would recommend taking a look at would be yeah, Exxon as well as ConocoPhillips. And then lastly, the communication services sector looks undervalued, but there's a caveat there, right? There is. <laughs> so in the communications sector, you know, the two names there, you know, you have Alphabet, which makes up, you know, 30% of our index, is certainly going to skew, you know, kind of the market capitalization weighted, you know, average of the entire sector. And so Alphabet, you know, we believe it's trading probably about 10% below, you know, our fair value estimate at this point in time. And then Facebook, that also makes up another 15% of the weight of the index. You know, Facebook is probably trading somewhere around, you know, 8% below our fair value. So between those two names, you know, that certainly skews you know, the overall market valuation. And however, I'd say, you know, those are both names that I think investors should take a look at today. Having said that, you know, there are a couple of other names in there, kind of more in the traditional communication side. AT&T would be one that we think is undervalued today. And then in more of the communication slash media area, you know, we'd recommend investors taking a look at Viacom CBS. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time today and for this sector perspective. And of course, everyone always appreciates a few stock ideas too. Thank you. All right, thank you. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Alec Lucas from Morningstar Research Services does a deep dive on Vanguard. Hi, I'm Susan Chubinsky with Morningstar. Vanguard is the world's largest retail fund family. But how can this one-time disruptor keep from becoming the disrupted? Joining me today to discuss where Vanguard is headed is Alec Lucas. Alec is a strategist with Morningstar's manager research group. Thanks for being here today, Alec. Thanks for having me. Now, you recently wrote an article for Morningstar.com that did a deep dive into Vanguard. Yep. And you point out that Vanguard does face significant competition. Who do you think is the biggest competitor today? Yeah, it's a great question. Vanguard definitely faces competition from a price standpoint from some of the industry biggest, the industry's biggest players. So think Fidelity, BlackRock, Schwab. I think rather than picking one, it's probably better to think in terms of each firm has a particular business or line of business that competes with Vanguard in one respect or another. So BlackRock, for example, it's iShares ETF business is an alternative to Vanguard's ETFs. Fidelity has uh, very strong actively managed funds, some of them which can compete with Vanguard's. And then with Schwab, you've got a brokerage platform that in some cases has options that are not available on Vanguard's brokerage platform. And in other cases, we'll have an option with a lower investment minimum than the same one on Vanguard's platform. Now, but Vanguard is, of course, not, you know, sitting on its laurels. Um, it's, you know, pursuing some different initiatives that, again, you talked about in this article, an attempt to really transform itself and the industry. And um, one of those initiatives is to make advice more accessible. What exactly does that mean and what are they doing? Yeah, it's interesting that Vanguard is emphasizing advice to the extent that they are. Historically, Vanguard started its business by going direct to consumer, if you will, so sort of bypassing advice at the time. Advice has been something that's been a feature of Vanguard's business since the 1990s, but it really took a significant turn in May 2015 with the launch of Vanguard Personal Advisor Services. It's a discretionary asset management business that's available for investors with at least $50,000, and it starts at 30 basis points or 0.30% per year uh, as an asset-based based fee. And then in May of 2020, they launched, they launched Vanguard Digital Advisor. So instead of, uh, whereas PAS is a hybrid 
system. It, it's humans as well as, as digital advice. Digital advisor is obviously only digital. And it's for investors with $3,000 minimum, and it uses four ETFs uh, and gives them, you know, it assesses their goals, risk tolerances, and there's over 300 different glide paths. So both options, and it's 20 basis points, including underlying fund fees. Both options are cheap. Uh, both options offer, you know, your average retail investor an ability to get, uh, you know, best-in-class uh, asset management for a very competitive price. Now, you did point out in your article that there's a little bit of a wrinkle um, that Vanguard's asset-based fees, the model there, can be costly for some investors. Who would those investors be? It'd be very high net worth clients. So as a reminder, a 30 basis point fee works out to $30 for every 10,000 invested. And if you have $25 million or more, that asset base fee drops to five basis points or 0.05% for every $10,000 invested. So you're only paying $5 per $10,000 invested. But if you have a lot of money, that can still add up. So an account that has $100 million at Vanguard you would pay $77,500 in fees per year. And if you don't need an overhaul every year, um, it stands to reason that maybe you shouldn't be paying a, a, salary, a salary's worth of fees to yeah. Vanguard, if you will. And so they, they stop short of offering flexible pricing models. I think that would be complicated for them to do, and that's one reason perhaps they didn't do it. But definitely if they were to introduce flexible price, pricing models, that would be a help and a service to investors who are very high net worth. Now, another initiative that Vanguard's pursuing is investing more in its active equity business, which, again, seems a little ironic from, from Vanguard. Um, and just, in fact, about a week ago in late August, um, they announced that they are launching three new active equity funds via the personal advisor service. Why strategically is investing in active important to Vanguard? Yeah, it's become increasingly important because as you know, Vanguard really has become known for indexing. It started off with an active managed business that's, that's less well known. But as it's had such tremendous success with indexing, um, index products, broad market exposure has, has somewhat become a commodity. Uh, Fidelity, BlackRock, Schwab all have offerings that either match or undercut Vanguard on fees for broad market exposure. And so as that's increasingly become the case, um, a standout active lineup can become an important differentiator. And Vanguard historically has done a lot of its actively managed funds combine multiple sub-advisors. They have different styles. It reduces risk in terms of volatility and, and it offers the possibility and in many cases the actuality of benchmark beating returns. But over long periods of time, those benchmark beating returns tend to be pretty modest. If you have a high conviction actively managed strategy, if it does well, and that's the big if, uh, then it can really offer material outperformance that can change an investor's experience of retirement, for example. And so they've launched three funds uh, for, for, for advisory clients that are very high conviction uh, in their approach. One's a dividend growth approach run by Don Kilbride of Wellington Management. Another is a global value approach run by David Palmer of Wellington Management. And then Lawrence Burns and James Anderson of Bailey Gifford are running an international growth strategy. And what do we think? I mean, in general, we think pretty highly of those sub-advisors, right? Yeah, the admiral share class of, so Vanguard Dividend Growth doesn't have an admiral share class. It's a gold-rated fund and long has been. Um, and the admiral share classes of Vanguard International Growth and Vanguard Windsor are both silver-rated by us. So we think highly of all three managers. Um, Don Kilbride, for example, has run a version of the concentrated strategy that he'll be running in this new fund. He's run that since early 2008. And it's had excellent results. 
Um, and it's very concentrated. His normal Vanguard dividend growth strategy has about 50 stocks in its portfolio. This new one will have about 25. So he has to pick well, and historically he's done that. But um, he's rewarded investors for that added risk. And um, the third initiative that Vanguard's pursuing is democratizing private equity. Um, what are the pros and cons in general of private equity investing? Yeah, the big pro is that you can, even after significant fees, get market-beating returns over long periods of time. And it's returns that aren't tightly correlated, correlated with the public equity market. The con, of course, is there's a wider range of outcomes, so you're, you, you can lose money. And even if you make money, your capital is tied up for long periods of times. And, and so that's the big con. It tends to be that you have to be a very high net worth uh, individual, a qualified investor is the lingo to access private equity. But Vanguard, in sort of rolling out private equity, has, has a goal eventually to perhaps introduce it to target date funds and make it more readily accessible. And there's, there's challenges to that. There's a lot of capacity constraints in the private equity world that would make it difficult to roll it out more broadly, but Vanguard's certainly thinking about doing that. And what, would, what are some of the things that you think Vanguard's doing right when it comes to private equity right now? So they've proven, they've, they've partnered with a proven fund of funds manager in HarborVest, so you're getting about as much diversification in private equities as you can. They're um, rolling it out slowly. The allocation to clients is being rolled out slowly, so that even if it turns out we're at a private equity top right now, the investors won't be fully allocated uh, in that respect for several years now. So they'll be gradually buying in. They're taking a long-term horizon as they do with all their investing. And they've structured the partnership so that it, it doesn't become really economically beneficial to HarborVest until they hit an 8% hurdle rate. So investors are, they're not guaranteed an 8% return, but certainly HarborVest is incentivized uh, to produce results at that level, if not higher. And then on the flip side, what could use some improving? I think that they could be more careful in some of the um, promoing of private equity that they've done. You know, they compare, the, the, the basic comparison they've made is the ability of private equity over a long period of time to beat uh, global equities by 350 basis points or 3.5 percentage points a year. Um, but they're comparing private equity to something like the MSCI Acqui benchmark that's mid and large cap global stocks. The reality is that historically at least private equity has been dominated in uh, biotech and technology related companies, especially in North America. And so if you compare those results to a, say for example Prime Cap, which is a manager Vanguard knows well, they've historically invested pretty significantly in biotech and, and tech, doing so through public equities you know, the results are less impressive. So I think they could be more careful in their comparisons they're giving um, because there are challenges to investing in private equity, even as responsible as Vanguard is doing it. And then lastly, Alec, how, how likely do you think that these initiatives are going to help Vanguard sort of fortify and maintain its position in the industry? Uh, I would say highly likely. I mean, it's hard to envision a future in which Vanguard isn't a major player in the asset management uh, industry and, and hard to envision a future in, in which they're not a leader. I think if you think about Vanguard, the biggest threat to Vanguard is Vanguard itself. You know, they face the challenge of maintaining their investor first culture. And if they can do that, uh, they can continue to serve investors well for a very long time. Well, Alec, thank you so much for your perspective on this um, very well liked and uh, respectable fund firm. We appreciate your time. Thank you. I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in.
Next, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services discusses durable dividend funds. Hi, I'm Susan Chavinsky with Morningstar. In today's low-rate environment, dividend-paying stocks remain attractive options to many income seekers. Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research, Ben Johnson, took a deep dive into the topic of dividend durability and ETFs investing in dividend-paying stocks in a recent issue of Morningstar ETF Investor. He's here today to talk about that research. Hi, Ben. Thank you for being here. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. So let's start out by talking about what makes a stock's dividend durable. Well, ultimately, durable dividends are rooted in durable franchises. When you look at stocks that pay regular dividends that have grown them over time, these tend to be more stable, more mature businesses, businesses that benefit from what we at Morningstar would call a wider and narrow economic moat. So they're highly cash generative. As they've grown into maturity, they have fewer reinvestment needs. So they're plowing less of that cash back into the business. And they're sharing more of that cash with time with their loyal shareholders and ultimately, uh, ideally, growing those dividend payments uh, over time. So many of these stocks are, are household names names like McDonald's or Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble. Now, in the article in ETF Investor, you talk about the old guard of dividend-focused ETFs uh, that include stocks based on their dividend track records. This would be ETFs like Vanguard Dividend Appreciation and Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity. So let's talk specifically a little bit about these two ETFs. How are they similarly constructed and what's different about them? Well, at face value, VIG, the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation ETF, and SCHD, the Schwab ETF, are are more similar than they are different. So specifically, when it comes to selecting stocks that they'll include in their portfolios, they're looking for a track record of paying dividends, at least 10 years in the case of both of these funds. Once they've selected their stocks, both of these funds also weight those stocks on the basis of their market capitalization. So they're letting the market do a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to position sizing. How much of that stock are they going to own in their portfolios? But really, the the similarities stop there. So even when it comes to looking at dividend track records, VIG looks specifically for at least 10 years worth of dividend growth, whereas SCHD looks for stocks that have paid dividends, not necessarily grown them, for at least 10 years. What you see in the case of SCHD also is a narrower portfolio. So it limits the number of stocks it holds to 100, whereas VIG historically has tended to hold around 250 stocks. SCHD also tends to tilt a little bit more towards value. It's got a bit of a value bias because one of the selection criteria that it employs, in addition to looking for stocks that have paid dividends for at least 10 years, is their current dividend yields. So that factors into how it selects the 100 stocks that are ultimately going to be represented in their portfolio. So what that results in is at the margin, SCHD has a little bit more of a value bias. It's got a narrower portfolio than VIG. And along with it comes a a little incremental risk relative to what you see in VIG, which casts a wider net Uh, tends to not lean towards value to the degree that SCHD does uh, and tends to have smaller positions in a larger number of names. 
Now, you point out in the article, Ben, that these types of funds that are looking at dividend track records um, have a blind spot. Let's talk a little bit about what that blind spot is and what these types of funds are giving up as a result of that. Well, what these funds give up is the opportunity to participate in the dividend growth among an emerging class of, of dividend growers. So those stocks that had never paid dividends previously had begun more recently and might have up to nine years worth of consecutive dividend growth. And what we've seen most recently is that this has characterized a, a significant chunk of some of the largest names in the technology sector, for example, and most prominently Apple, which is just within a hair's breadth now of being eligible for inclusion in both of these portfolios. So what investors are missing out on, given that there are these very stringent dividend payment selection criteria in place, is you know, the class of emerging dividend payers, emerging dividend growers. So Ben, you say that there are some newer, uh, a newer breed of, of dividend-focused ETF that sort of takes advantage of this blind spot of these other funds. Let's talk a little bit about some of these newer ETFs and what we think of them. Yeah, so there's a pair that I've looked at recently, the first of which is the ProShares S&P Technology Dividend Aristocrats ETF. The ticker for that one is TDV. And that portfolio really lands pretty squarely in the blind spot uh, of VIG and, and of SCHD. So it, it's looking for dividend payers specifically within the tech sector. Uh, it's got a less stringent dividend payment requirement and sweeps in some of those names that are otherwise absent from the dividend old guard as, as we've described it. Now, the drawback to that is, is that because of that less stringent dividend requirement, those dividends might not necessarily be as durable. The other issue is, is that it's a pretty narrow field. So by virtue of being a, a narrow field and a narrow portfolio, that leaves the underlying index having to equally weight the stocks in the portfolio. So it's actually been relatively underweight some of the largest, some of the strongest dividend payers and dividend growers within that sector most notably Apple. And as a result, it's actually underperformed the tech sector at large since its inception. So the second ETF that I've looked at that attempts to address this, this drawback, this, this blind spot of, of the dividend old guard is the Victory Shares Dividend Accelerator ETF. The ticker for that one is VSVA. And no different than TDV, what is in place in the case of this fund's index methodology is a less stringent dividend requirement. So a dividend requirement that's half that uh, required by VIG uh, or SCHD. So specifically, this portfolio allows for the inclusion of stocks that have paid or grown dividends for just five years. Uh, that said, what we see is that the actual allocation to these names within the portfolio is quite small and quite small by design. So while it attempts to address this blind spot, it, it really is just tipping its hat in the direction towards this category of emerging dividend growers, as opposed to going all in on them or owning them in a larger uh portion of, of the portfolio then might be desirable for an investor that's truly looking to address what 
again, is, is uh, in many cases a, a significant blind spot in the more stringent portfolios like those offered by VIG and SCHD. So at the, at the end of the day, Ben, is one option better for income seekers than another? Should they stick with the old guard or go with the new guard? Ultimately, I think income seekers should be focused on durability and dividend growth, especially in the context of the current low yield and you know, increasing inflation environment. So the old guard has a lot to offer despite some of its shortcomings. And many of those names that I've mentioned, many of the emerging dividend growers that have come to the scene over the course of the past decade are just a few years away from being added to these portfolios. Many of them have dividends that have a lot of momentum and are likely to continue to grow for the decades to come. So many of these blind spots are, are probably no longer going to be blind spots if we're going to sit down and have this same conversation two or three years from now. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time today and for walking us through some of the nuances of these dividend stock ETFs. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm Susan Javinsky for Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly this week, Megan Patchlock from Morningstar Research Services explains Morningstar's slugging percentage. Hi, I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. As we enter the home stretch for the 2021 baseball season, Morningstar has developed a slugging percentage for U.S. stock funds. Joining me today to discuss some of the funds that hit for power is Megan Patchelak. Megan is a fellow fan of the Chicago White Sox and an analyst with Morningstar's global multi-asset funds research team. Hi, Megan. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Susan. So let's start out by talking a little bit about what's the value of understanding what a fund's slugging percentage is. Right. Well, a fund's slugging percentage is another performance metric that any investor can add to their scorecard when evaluating a fund. If you think about it in baseball terms, slugging percentage helps differentiate two players that may have a similar batting average, let's say 300, but, they have very, but one of them will consistently hit a single, whereas another will hit maybe consistently a double or even a home run. That could have a different impact on the game in key situations. The same goes for comparing two funds against their benchmark. Let's say you have two funds, and over a certain time horizon, they both outperform the benchmark over the same number of months. It's also important for an investor to know how much they outperform to buy, because one fund can outperform by a small margin, while the other one is consistently crushing the benchmark. So that can play a role in how an investor is thinking about adding that fund into their portfolio and setting expectations. So then how did you go about creating the slugging percentage? What goes into it? So the slugging percentage, we calculated it for active U.S. equity funds over the past 10 years through June 30th. In order to do that, we looked at monthly returns for a fund. And when it had a positive access return compared to the most relevant benchmark of its category, we stacked it up against other funds within that category that also had a positive access return for that particular month. For each month, we then assigned a, a fund a score. So for funds that were in the top 10% of outperformers, they scored a four because we considered them to hit it out of the park. The next 20% scored a three, the next 30% a two, and finally the bottom 40% of outperformers scored a one. We then summed the total number of points for a fund and divided it by the number of months that we evaluated. And that was how we came about the slugging percentage. 
And then from a Morningstar category perspective, which categories had the highest slugging percentages and then maybe which ones didn't have such great slugging percentages? Right, so out of the nine categories that make up the equity style box, the small cap growth category actually had the highest median slugging percentage. And we didn't find that too surprising because according to Morningstar's active passive barometer, it found that active funds within that category had better chances of outperforming their passive peers. On the other side, the U.S. large cap blend, large growth, as well as mid-blend categories all had similar median slugging percentages, however, they were at the bottom end of the spectrum. If you look at the large blend category as an example, they had one of the lowest slugging percentages, but they also had one of the lowest median average, batting average. And that just meant that funds within that category in general had a hard time beating their benchmark, the Russell 1000 index. That index has been historically known to be hard to beat, and some might call it the Cy Young of benchmarks. So let's talk a little bit now about some of the highest rated funds that Morningstar gives high fund analyst ratings to that also really have solid slugging percentages. Um, the first being gold rated Vanguard Prime Cap. Now that fund was the top slugger in the large blend category, right? Right, so that category, as we mentioned earlier, didn't produce the highest sluggers. But Vanguard Prime Cap differentiated itself and actually produced an impressive 1.47 slugging percentage. That fund is run by a stable and talented team at Subadvisor Prime Cap Capital Management, and they really implement a long-term, high-conviction contrarian approach to investing. Uh, another top slugger um, and highly rated, silver-rated Morgan Stanley Institutional Advantage had the greatest slugging percentage among funds in the large growth category. That's right, and that fund impressively also had the widest margin between its slugging percentage as well as the median for its category. It's run by veteran manager Dennis Lynch, and he really looks for names that are dominant within the market or have a high, um, strong network effect. And they were actually one of the first to include private placements within their fund and have recently said that they would consider popular cryptocurrency Bitcoin. And then lastly, in the category with the biggest sluggers of all, bronze-rated Virtus KAR small cap growth is the biggest of the biggest when it comes to slugging, right? That's right, Susan. <laughs> so that fund in a category of big sluggers produced an impressive slugging percentage. And also over that same time horizon had an excess return over its benchmark of 6.8%. It's run by co-managers that have a best idea portfolio, and most of the assets actually reside in the top 10 stocks. And one thing that's interesting is that some of the um, funds with the highest slugging percentage don't actually earn very high Morningstar fund analyst ratings. Why is that? That's because slugging percentage is a historical met performance metric that doesn't take into account the magnitude of losses when a fund doesn't outperform. Um, meanwhile, a Morningstar analyst rating is a forward-looking assessment that really looks at a wider range of factors, including the fund's management team, their process, as well as the fund's expenses. Well, Megan, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate talking about this fresh approach to um, looking at funds. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in, and go White Sox. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program, and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. 
Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.